Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to the No One Fights Alone podcast, where we honor the men and women of our nation's first responder community by having difficult conversations about the challenges they face to ensure no one fights alone. Brad, our guest is uh, caffeinated and ready to go for us today. She is jacked up. We're ready to go. <laughs> so it's the the funny part about that is uh, when I first met our guest, that was the the thing she said to me that I remember very clearly was, I do not have my purple monster. And so today is going to be a tough day. Well, I think she's ready. And I think, I think we ought to not spend any time harassing her and just get her on here and let her tell her story. Uh, Lisa Pascati, 30 year veteran of uh, Salt Lake. Did I, did I butcher your name? You're shaking your head. Yes. Yes, you did. <laughs> That's right. I'm used to it. I'm used to it. We'll just make a name up. It's all good. Smith. Lisa Smith. Yeah, I think he looked. At your, there you your go. Email. That fits too. Yeah. <laughs> he looked at your email address. That's that's where he got that one. Oh, that's okay. I apologize. So 30-year veteran, Salt Lake PD, uh, retired. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity, gentlemen. And Austin, I can't believe you remembered the monster. Oh, yeah. That's funny. I was very upset about that on day one. Oh, I know. That's why. I Actually, if you remember, it is when we were walking. Uh, it was one of the very yes. first things you said. Yeah. So it cracked me up. and Yeah, I was pretty stressed out about that. Yep. And if that was your biggest concern, I remember thinking to myself, if that's your biggest concern, I think we'll be okay. You weren't there the day I found out there was no pool. So, And then there was the whole bike short thing. So, yeah. So we used to have a pool. And uh, out, out on the other side, actually, uh, the I don't know if you know anything about those builders, but whoever built that whole complex is a terrible person. That's the reality. Uh, they're all falling apart. There's all issues and everything. But there was a pool over in the corner, and we actually filled it in because it was somewhat dangerous. Oh, okay. That's that flat area I was looking at. Yep. Then. I think that builder built my house as well. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was my first experience with Austin. I think I was there, what, maybe 15 minutes. I think I got prepped, had some food. And I was like, oh, I got to go for a walk. Austin stepped right up and, and said, okay, let's go for a walk. So I knew I was in a good place at that moment. Well, Lisa, I love your energy and I absolutely love your smile. What the viewers can't actually see right now is how big a smile that is. And I got to know uh, Lisa better on, uh, we have a first responder alumni Zoom call that we do weekly. And that's how I've gotten to really know Lisa and see that that smile transform from uh, apprehension to now joy. And I see a lot of peace in those eyes. So Lisa, tell us a little bit about your story. Okay. So um, as Brad mentioned, I I'm a 30-year retired uh, law enforcement officer in, in the state of Utah. And during that time, I developed a reputation, and it was well-deserved. I, I was kind of a crap magnet my entire career. I started out in accident investigations, actually spent 18 of my career doing nothing but investigating near-fatal and fatal accidents. So I had a lot of trauma exposure over the years, and it just became expected. If, if there was an attempt to locate... It, I was probably reading the plate sitting right in front of me. I mean, it was no joke. 
dispatch just expected that everybody expected the city to go to crap when, when I was working. So I spent a majority of my career, like I said, in accident investigation. So on the street, I did have some time in investigations. I spent some time in a community unit as well as public relations. I was the executive officer at one point of the department. And I also helped develop the basis for what we have now as far as peer support during that time. And and that was part of my story is, is I was involved in a critical incident in 2008 and developed PTSD after a diagnosable PTSD. I, I probably, looking back on my career, I probably had it long before that. I had a friend of mine that I had played golf with one afternoon and two hours later, I was watching him die on the pavement. I think that was really the beginning of my kind of dance, if you will, uh, with PTSD, because that's what I did for the next few years is I did nothing but dance around it. At that time, we had no idea what that was. We didn't have a peer support or wellness program. We did not have culturally competent clinicians at all. And I experienced that as, as others did, you know, I did try to get help because after about a year, uh, after my, my friend dying, I was really having some issues. I was having issues with triggers. You know, we know what to call them now. I had no idea. All I knew is that I couldn't stand the smell of blood and fire sirens really set me off because, you know, I was there when they arrived. So anytime I heard a fire truck coming by, it would immediately bring that. And the smell of blood was just ridiculously bad for me. I just, and so a year later, my life was falling apart. I had no idea why. And I just worked my way through that, eventually accessed some uh, therapy, and the guy just had no concept. He, he just could not wrap his mind around what I was seeing weekly. In fact, at one point, he accused me of making stuff up. And that's when I just stopped. And so I didn't get help for years. I just, you know, I struggled through it. Uh, I went through being uh, ridiculed by my squad mates because I was just, you know, I was tuning out, man. I was missing my call sign and they were having to pick things up. And you know how we're our worst enemy. We're like the worst wolf pack ever, right? Um, you're either the top dog or you're not. And if you're acting weird in the pack, they'll do what they can to shove you out. Unfortunately, that's that's what led me originally to wellness is, is when we did finally have a peer support team. So when you went to seek help, the, the person who was accusing you of, of making up something or things, this was a therapist? Or this was, was a therapist. Yeah. They, okay. Because they could not wrap their mind. I mean, I was opening up in there. I was trying to felt like I was, you know, this is what you're supposed to do in therapies unload this stuff. Right. I mean, they, they understood the, the death of a coworker, but they didn't understand the absolutely horrific things that we see on a daily basis. And, sure. and, they just couldn't wrap it. it I, I've forgiven that person because they, they literally just could not wrap their minds around the cruelty that we see human beings doing to each other. They just couldn't. They just didn't believe that I'd experienced any of that. You know, and then fast forward to my current therapist, um, who is very culturally competent, um, knows me better than anybody on this planet. I can't get away with anything with this guy, which is good because he calls me out on my stuff. But, you know, he, once he heard my story, he was, he was like, you are like the poster child for trauma exposure. I'm like, yeah, but you know, honestly, I don't consider myself special in any way. Like, yes, I'm a crab magnet. I accept that. It, it, that part is true, but I don't think my experience is any different than your average patrol officer. It's really not. And that's, that's what led me to the wellness portion and wanting to do that is because I realized that people just don't 
we don't even understand what this will do to you. It's not a matter of when and, and if. It is a will. Like it's it's scientifically impossible to not have post-traumatic stress at some point during a career. It's just not. Like you're either psychotic or you're in the biggest state of denial ever because I don't think a majority of us, like myself, got in to this career uh, to genuinely help people. We have a compassionate side. Now, I've been called a compassionate badass, and I truly believe that. I, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I still, even at the end of my career, was able to see the human being behind everything. And there's a story about Chateau I'll share regarding that. But yeah, you're not, our, I don't believe, and this is part of my spirituality, I don't believe that we are designed to see human beings doing the things that we see to other human beings. It, it's going to affect you. I think we're genetically programmed that way. We're evolutionary project programmed that way. God wants us to be that way, right? So it, it's going to have an effect and it definitely affected me uh, as much as the compassion and the empathy and the ability to see the human being during my career made me a very good law enforcement officer. It also pretty much set me up to, to eventually have some form of post-traumatic stress. And then when you know, you have enough of those accumulatively, like I said, like any law enforcement officer, I'm no different there. Um, it developed into post-traumatic injury. And that's what I deal with every day now. And that was one of the reasons I went to Chateau. Um, you know, it's interesting. So, that, yeah, uh, that's, that's there's, there's a recent research there. coming out that law enforcement officers are seeing somewhere between 400 to 800 trauma based incidents in the span of their career. So I really, I really hear you when you say it's hard to go through a career and not be impacted by these somehow. And, you know, God bless the person that doesn't develop some type of lingering post uh, trauma symptoms. Um, but it's, it's important to get out ahead. So I'm going to circle back real quick to the, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but the, the, when you actually found a therapist that actually heard you and in your mind, you, they see me, they hear me. Was there some validation there compared to the therapist we were speaking of your first one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mostly it was, he had treated military already. So I think, I think it was pretty apparent to me just in the first conversation that, that he knew our culture, right? He knew that he was dealing with people that are type A, we are not going to come out of our shell, like, screw you. I don't even know you. Why am I talking to you? You know, and, and, and I'd had such a bad experience before. I took a couple sessions before I was really willing to open up, but I didn't, he had the ability to make me not feel judged. I felt completely judged by the, that first one. And I didn't feel like they could, I was looking for understanding and validation. Like you said, I was looking for somebody to say, oh yeah, that's, that's horrible, you know, without judgment. And that's one thing my therapist is very good at. And I think any culturally competent therapist is they understand our culture. So they know they're dealing with, I think, Brad, you've said it before in group. It's almost by the time you get into a career like I did, you're almost institutionalized, really. Right. You're, you've been brought into this culture. You're taught to not feel, to not talk about feeling, to never show your feelings. And then you get thrown in and to not trust people. You learn very quickly not to trust strangers. I, I learned that even before the career. So you're going into this spot and then you open up for that first time and you're not only feel not trusted, but not validated, definitely not understood. And so it's, it's just a no go. And so he was just very good about not making you feel like you were being judged. 
and making you feel like he, he was very good about making me feel safe and that it was okay to share. And he shared with me what his experience was. So I could go, okay, he's, he's done military and first responders. And then my experience with him was just so good. Like he didn't actually start out to specialize in first responders, but he's so good at, at making you feel that way that, you know, of course we're going to talk to each other. And so when I started doing the wellness thing, I was like, Hey, I know this guy, he's amazing. I use him, you know? And then next thing you know, he's like up and down the state. So, which is cool. Cause he's, he's, he's a great dude. He's saved my life many times and many others. I know he has. So that's so important to have someone. I know you guys have touched on that. Did you kind of give him the opportunity almost to, uh, prove the fact that you couldn't trust him. So like in your first few sessions, were there like little tests that you were giving him to make sure that, you know, you actually could trust him and he actually did understand what you were talking about? I don't know that. I don't remember actually doing any tests. I think that the, the time I went to him when we first really started working together was after a shooting where I'd been involved in a shooting. I was not the shooter, but I was present for it. And I carried a lot of guilt over that because I felt like tactically I'd made an error that got this gentleman killed. Right. And it was two weeks before I could even speak to my partner. You know, we were never able to like, you don't, you can't talk to each other. I mean, you're a homicide suspect. Right. And so I had not slept. I mean, I was a wreck. I just wanted help. And so I think I just kind of went in and, and he, I guess in some ways it was a test because he's like, what do you need from me? I was like, I just need to tell my story. I just need to get this out. It's like, I can't sleep. It's playing. It's over and over and over again. And I just kind of vomited all that out. And then he immediately started talking about ways that we could work on that, you know, and it introduced me to EMDR. But before he did it, he said, I want you to read about it. You know, he gave me control back. That was one thing that was really helpful. And, and that's when I knew he knew us because he's like, okay, this guy understands we're all control freaks because that's what we do, right? We go and control situations. We're very uncomfortable when we can't. So that might have been, yeah, my first test. And since then, I mean, over the years, I, I've probably thrown stuff out there that he doesn't even deserve and he's never failed me yet. But I don't know. Maybe it's just his personality, but it was pretty easy for me to to trust him pretty quickly. And then I've had such good results with with what he knows and you know, knowing that he continually learns and he's willing to learn and goes out of his way to get more skills. I think he genuinely does want to help all of us. And that was so important to me to be seen as a human being on the other side, because we just don't, you know, that's been the issue the last few years that's caused so much stress amongst the profession is, is what's been going on as far as like, we want you to see us as humans, but we're still not going to see you as humans. And you're like, all I want to do, I'm a human being too, you know? So, yeah. I want to speak to that uh, institutionalization. It's kind of has a really ugly tone to it, but, but it's, it's actually there for a reason. I mean, they want you, they train you, they prepare you, they mentally adjust you to do the work because you can't break down on a scene. You, you need to get the job done. They need, right. they need people who are going to finish the mission. However, uh, once that disengagement happens from the emotion right? You're emotionally disengaging. And what we've known, what we know now is that it's oftentimes the utilization of humor or anger uh, in those two capacities to utilize that emotional disengagement. But, uh, you know, it's fascinating when you bring this up, because I think it's a great topic. Um, 
of the discussion because we it's the re-engagement of that right that really gets messy right when we start looking at holy shit this is this is messing with me and i don't know how to handle it right yeah and and i think that's where i and others are others are still being filled we've come a long way i mean one thing i had i guess the privilege of doing over my career is seeing how we've gotten trauma incident core and peer support and wellness and now it's a huge topic right but we're still failing miserably. I mean, my own department that I trained, I felt like I trained them to be to be trauma informed. And we really pushed that on the civilian side. You know, our that was a big push in the last probably seven years or so was to be trauma informed and to treat victims from a perspective of trauma. But yet we don't do it amongst ourselves. We still don't to some extent, right? And that's the shame of it, is is I actually also had the the honor and privilege of speaking to our state legislature about exactly what you were just touching on, Brad, which was the just trying to get a layperson to understand what we ask law enforcement officers to do and what the effect is going to be, right? And I had I had a true, I, I'll fully share, I kind of used a trooper for this, but he's a friend of mine and, and um, we knew each other. I don't know if the, we were necessarily friends, so he trusted me, I think, and I kind of put him on the spot and he had no choice, but you know, I'm in a, a subcommittee and, and I, I thought for days ahead, I've been asked to do this. And I was like, how do I make this relevant for a civilian to understand uh, what it is their law enforcement officers are out there doing every day and what effect it has on them? And I used exactly that. I used a body count for one month. I uh, just talked to our sergeant and said, how many are you going? Because the, the thing that some people not in law enforcement don't understand is a patrol officer might go to one, two a week, right? But the sergeant's are required to go to every one of those. So if you're a sergeant with a squad of like six guys and you have, they have two deaths, they have one death individually, but that sergeant has two for that day. And he does that every year. She does that every single day. And on this, just prior to this speaking, it was the average for this sergeant was three per week. And so I extrapolated that out to 20 years. And I played that back for the legislature. I said, here's something I want you to think about while I'm talking. And it even astounded me. It was like, over a 20 year career, because they require 25 now, um, before you can get even 50% in the state of Utah, they changed that used to be 20. So these new guys have to do 25 years minimum to be able to retire. And it was like 21,670. It was like, even I was just like, oh my goodness. Wow. Like, have I seen that many? Really? I mean, do you become so numb to that, that you just don't even, you don't even think about that, but then, you know, you're like, wow. So that worked pretty good. That got them grounded. And then I, I just pointed out to him, I had the trooper stand up and I said, you know, I bet every one of you in this committee can look at this, what we call our bat belt, right? The utility belt, that law enforcement officer wears. I said, you can probably tell me what each one of those tools are. Can't you? Is there anything on this guy's belt? And I had him turn around. I said, is there anything on this guy's belt you don't recognize? Let's talk about it. They all knew exactly what that equipment was. And I said, does any of this equipment keep them mentally well? And they just looked at me. I said, we spend, and at the time, my my department was spending $90,000 per new recruit. So a green recruit to bring them in, train them, equip them, put them through field training, get them on the street. I said, we're spending $90,000 per person to teach them how to remain physically safe. And we are investing absolutely nothing in their mental wellness. We are literally asking human beings to go have this sort of exposure and giving them zero tools to survive it. That is wrong. Why are we doing that to our law enforcement officers? You have these amazing groups of people that want to go out and help their community 
and you're literally virtually guaranteeing them to have significant mental illness, suicidality, substance abuse later. And so that's what I've seen change that is encouraging is we're doing a little bit better job on that, but I didn't have any training. I mean, you, you mentioned that part of that institutionalization is preparing you to be mentally disengaging. And, and we do, we teach that for a very good reason, exactly what you stated, Rath. But what we don't do is we don't teach you what to do when you do have to re-engage. And in the end, before I came to Chateau, I was very good at work. Work became everything. Work was everything. And I realize now that that's because I was having trouble engaging that other side when I was off duty. I had such great focus on duty. I could ignore all that. I could practically disassociate from all that. I could go out and kick ass, take names, just like any other law enforcement officer wants to do. I thrived on it. And then I'd go home and the rabbit hole would start and I'd be like, okay, when can I work my next shift? When can I work my next overtime? I literally did it to myself, you know? It's, it's just a sick circle. I think that's a really good exercise. The, uh, you know, the, the pointing out of the bat belt as you, uh, you know, the, that metaphor that you're using there example, you're using there is the bat belt. We actually do a really good job of keeping our people physically safe, uh, training them. Well, uh, matter of fact, there's a continual push, um, probably now more than ever with some fabulous entities out here that, uh, improve your skills. If you, it's, if you want to improve your skills, it's only because you're not looking, uh, because there are some absolutely amazing things out there. What do you think is the hindrance to, uh, you know, let's take the red tape out of it. Uh, if an officer wants to go stay in this wellness game and keep myself healthy, you know, what were you pushing to the legislators besides money? Just saying, hey, here's some options. Did you do anything like that? Or Yeah, what we were talking about specifically is funding wellness programs. Um making that part of training. And then the biggest one at the time that we still haven't, it astounds me, we still have not gotten there. I don't even think it, I'm not even sure it came up in this year's legislature. I didn't pay as much attention as I would have liked, but we were, were trying to push towards making post-traumatic stress injury a, a, a presumptive condition. Um, there's a lot of conditions that even firefighters have that we don't have. You know, there are certain cancers that if firefighters get that, it's a presumpt- it's presumed that it's on the job. And and our argument for that was, is like, look, two things. If you invest in the wellness ahead of time, and I also use this with our city administration, that's how we finally got a culturally competent EAP. And we also were able to argue for more visits for first responders, because what we do experience is much more traumatic. Like we're experiencing trauma every day that your average city worker doesn't. But if you invest in that in the beginning, then you're less likely to be owning that person like I am, like I'm going to need treatment the rest of my life. I need it to maintain my sanity and, and be able to live now, right? But you need to understand that the odds of that happening are much higher than you believe, that, that we even know. I think the studies are low. It says last I saw it was like 18 to 20%. Um, I think it's much higher just because we don't talk about it. It's still something you don't talk about. It's like suicide. You don't talk about that stuff, Right. So that was the argument is we're, we're trying to get workers comp and some of the insurance agencies to get on board and, and recognize. And, and I believe firmly, they know exactly, they know that this is a problem, but because workers comp doesn't exist for the employee, they exist to save cities money, right? They were, they're going to fight it. And they did in that, that we tried to have a committee discussion after that. And then immediately, you know, cause they, they deny first and they make you go through it. And I had helped. While, while I was in wellness, I had helped people 
uh, fight those fights. I mean, I'm the lucky one where I'm one of the anomalies that was able to have a claim actually go through. And the only reason it did is because I had a, a physical injury related to it. And, and under our occupational law, that's the way it works. It's interesting that, I mean, I'm involved a little bit of this in the state. So it's 15 to 20% right now is okay. the number nationally for first responders that are presumed to have PTSD. This is why I believe it have, doesn't hold uh, water. PTSI that is like saying when you tore your ACL playing football in, in high school and then you get on the job and you tear it with again, workers comp and that, that is with, not a you know, new someone injury. trying to take a medical retirement. Or that that is, that is an aggravation uh, of an old injury and we're not going to cover it. No, it's a new injury. Attempting to try and prove that a majority of the PTSI claims are actually is the counter argument then that are so they are taking whatever these people say you know have happened in their life for pre-employment what they're doing is they're saying well actually how is that possible into the it's going to pick that up it should pick that up right and that is i mean you have traits like pts presents with anxiety depression not a lot of states are doing that and i mean utah is definitely one so we with the gentleman that had a claim in and that was the determination by the state now of course that was appealed right and i prefer to call it hey look okay that's what it is and jumping back to brad's statement earlier you know seven to eight hundred or whatever so yeah i i have heard that and it was disturbing their lifetime that's exactly three that's you know, I have, I have a former employee that contacted me even in retirement three, that's fighting our current you know, visual, workers' comp for something similar where they uh, had a, issues that a they physical may see throughout their life considered a critical incident. And they re-injured it, basically. I mean, tell me, is, is, have you heard that recently later, that they're trying so they to utilize you know, trauma that may have happened before on the job and or in childhood now or workers whatever comp is saying, oh, no, that's, that's, you're an old, it's an old injury. We're not going to cover it. It's like, okay, so if I broke my leg and it healed up, and we can see it healed up, and then I break it. 10 years later, we're just going to write that off. So again, I think it's just a lot of obfuscation. Like we're just not going to talk about it. Um, we're going to make it as muddy as possible. So I think our current you know, trend of how difficult it is in law enforcement, and I don't want to get into a political conversation, but the reality is law enforcement's pretty, uh, they're, they're not looked well upon generically. Uh, depends on some communities and, and states, but you know, overall it's very passively dismissed that that's just part of your job, and we're not going to really think too deeply on that. And behind the scenes, uh, there's some financial decisions being made that are very directly impacting uh, the the health and wellness of people who have been involved in uh, journeys like yours. Yeah, and I, Is that yeah, fair? Is that yeah fair? that's a fair statement. And I mean, I, I'll even go further. I'll say there, there's the wreckage behind it. Uh, like mine, because I know we're getting short on time. And I, I do want to, part of my story is coming to Chateau, right? And I think part of my story that's important uh, for those out there maybe to hear is that that wreckage affected me. And I considered myself, and I've been told by many people that uh, I have bombing resiliency skills. Like for the amount of trauma I've experienced over a career, let alone my personal life, the fact that I was even still working a job at all, let alone in law enforcement, was astounding. And it's because I took that on early when I recognized I was finally educated by my therapist, like what was going on. He was very good at teaching me some skills. And then I like learning. And I was also given the peer support program. So it was my job to learn what was nationally accepted, what evidence-based stuff was. Despite all of that, I still ended up absolutely wrecked. And I knew it. It was like watching it happen. And I felt helpless to do. I was doing everything in my power to keep my head above water. And I just 
couldn't do it. And this is somebody who knows. I, I knew exactly what was going on with me and I could not help myself. That's what ended up bringing me to Chateau is my therapist for years had been saying, you know, with your level, you need to get off the street. Well, I was trying to, and I was being passed over. I believe because I was being very vocal. I was, I've always been very open about the fact that I have PTSD. I wanted to make that available because when I took the peer support program, I had rank, which was something we had never tried before. And if you talk to anybody, they're like, oh yeah, you can't have rank. Well, I'm, I did have rank, but I took the rank out of it when I was dealing with our people and I thought I was very good at that and it worked. And so I was very open about talking about my story like I'm doing today, because if it helps one person, like I still felt by the, the day I went to Chateau, I felt like I was completely alone. And, you know, intelligently, I knew I wasn't. I knew this was an experience lots of people had, but I felt completely alone. And because of that, in the, in the months, probably the year prior to Chateau, the one reason I went is I was having near daily suicidal ideation. Like I had a playbook of ways to kill myself uh, where nobody would find. I mean, I engaged like this planning. I didn't even know I had, right. I called her suicidal Sally. She was like the app that would just pop in randomly. Like I never knew when it was going to come on. I'd be driving down the road. Suicidal Sally would be like, Hey, let's drive into that treat. I'm like, Oh Jesus, shut up, Sally. Like I got to go to this call. Knock it off. Right. But I couldn't control it. And I knew, you know, there were so many times I, I will tell you, it would shock people uh, that know me if they knew exactly how many times I put a gun to my head. And I practiced. I mean, I would pull the magazine out. I would go click. I could still do it today. I could put a little gun right now, put it to my head, make it go click. And it. I just became numb to it and almost became a stress reliever. Like if I got really stressed, I'd go home, put a gun to my head. And then I'd be like, oh my God, what are you doing? And I was doing that and, and I was being open with my therapist, you know, and for, so for like three years, he was like, you need to retire. If you can't get off the street, you, you like, this job's going to kill you in the back of my mind. I knew that, but you know, again, that culture is you never give up. And I, I particularly I'm stubborn, I'm obstinate. And because of the traumatic experience I had in high school, when I am faced with adversity, I go the opposite direction. I am damned to prove that I am not what you're telling me I am. I, I want to prove to you and to myself that I have worth. And so I go completely opposite. I go like full in, going to be the perfectionist, which also is not healthy, by the way. I need to learn moderation. It's coming. I think there's an important point uh, that we're making here about the, that you're bringing up that I'd like to talk about, which is, you know, we're looking at a little bit of statistics, but th- there's not a lot of research on the, or, or that I know of as of, you know, recently, I haven't seen it that, the folks coming into the first responder industry uh, arguably are more resilient by nature. So some of these data points that they're looking at saying, well, they're, you know, their PTSI or PTSD rates are not that much higher. However, arguably the amount of trauma incidents that they're involved in is enormously higher. So there's an argument to be made there that these these heroes that are coming into this community are resilient in nature. And this is, I've, I've heard people talk about this, that they're built that way. They're wired that way. And they're in the part of the effectiveness of the institutionalization that we were talking about earlier creates this resiliency as well. But we're still human. Yes. We still have this emotional package that that comes to bear 
And I think, you know, there's certain times that all those, let's, let's use your, your data of 21,000. Okay. Let's, let's theoretically out of the 21,000, those 21,000, 20,900 of them may not be that impactful, but that hundred is what really messes with you. And you've, you've associated yourself somehow with uh, familiarity, uh, through personal connection, through some type of, of, of a connection to these, to that number. And that's the one that really impacts you. I was going to jump in there real quick where he's talking about, you know, people are naturally resilient. Well, first responders in general seem to be more naturally resilient. That is because, and I will cite this uh, to you guys. It's actually a really interesting article to read, but it is through some, through some data, they realized that about 80% of people that go into the uh, first responder profession have actually experienced some type of a tra traumatic event earlier in their life which is the reason that they want to get into that profession. It is the reason they want to try and make a difference or the reason that they want to make sure whatever happened to them doesn't happen to somebody else. And then they have the opportunity to, to stop that and, and do good in the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's exactly why I got into law enforcement is because I had a, a well, two reasons, actually, I'll be honest here. So the first reason was I, I was a survivor of a violent sexual assault. And I hadn't actually thought originally of going into law enforcement, but then uh, originally I, I went to college for hydrogeologic engineering and I discovered that dropping out of advanced placement calculus in high school was a really bad idea because if I thought I wasn't getting help there, you're not going to get help with 400 people in a math class at a college level, right? And then I had organic chemistry and, and that was kind of the final straw. I was like, this melts my brain, you know? And so at the time I was working with uh, campus security. And so I'd gotten to know the cops that way and, and it intrigued me. And, you know, I saw other victims and I thought, you know, and, and at this point, and just to, to let everybody know, I didn't tell anybody uh, of my situation for 30 years. The first person I ever told was my therapist. And it took weeks for me to get the courage to even do that. Um, and that was one of the other reasons I came to Chateau was to finally deal with that. But going back to your point is that was why ultimately I became a law enforcement officer. I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for me to go out and really stop someone else from having to go through what I had to go through. And, you know, once you get 30 years down the road, which was how long it took me to have the courage to finally say something and your eyes are opened by therapy and you're like, I have wasted, not wasted, but I've survived and tried to manage as best as I could. Um, but I've lost a lot of time and that, that incident owned me and I'd like to be able to not let it own other people. Right. Do I think that I, do I know for sure that I saved anybody from being sexually assaulted? Uh, there's a few that I'm aware of for sure. Do I know others? I don't, but I have the faith that I probably did interrupt some things. And I hope that even if I saved one person from either experiencing what I experienced, or if they did experience it from doing a good enough job as an officer to make sure that their perpetrator if they had more courage than me to come forward, was held accountable. You know what I mean? And in coming to Chateau, I discovered again, uh, my story was not unique for a female. It's not unique. It's astounding, actually sad kind of what the rates are there. You know, anybody that has daughters, like, wow. I, I, I often think, you know, in the early days of my therapy, like I kind of hope my perpetrators ended up with daughters. And I hope they have that worry because that would be justice for me, right? For them to look at the daughter and go, I hope that, like, you know, I have this secret and I'm never going to tell you as my daughter, but wow, how would you feel as a father if that happened to your daughter kind of thing? So, 
Um, but you're right. I, I know a lot of people that did get into law enforcement um, because they, they were a victim at some point. And they either were not treated well by an officer and they're like, no, I can do better. I know some guys that did that. They're like, I can do better than this. People shouldn't be treated like this. You know, and then they get in and those are the officers you want to have, right? As a community, that's the officers you want to have as a community. You want officers that are mentally resilient, which a lot of us are, because quite frankly, if we weren't, you'd quit in the first week. You really would, you know, and that number, that 21,000 body count, as it were, that I, I threw through the legislature, I made it very clear to them that was just dead people. I said, that does not include the dying people, the hurt children, the arguing people. I mean, we don't get to see people on their best day. Sometimes we do. We get to deliver babies. Every once in a while, you get to do something really amazing. And that keeps you going for another, you know, three, four, five years, right? But for the most part, we're there on your absolute worst day. And that's what we witness. And that's what the community expects us to witness and manage and solve other people's problems. And then we don't teach each other how to solve our own. And we're horrible at it. We are notoriously bad. We are so good at going into a situation going, you know, if you did this, if you did that, blah, blah, blah. And then you sit back at yourself and you don't even do it because you just don't. And, you know, I don't even have an answer for that one. Well, I didn't. I mean, I thought I was doing well. Obviously, I wasn't. It was above me. I had to, at some point before coming to Chateau, have several really close friends sit me down and go, you need to do more. Like, we know you're trying. We love you're trying. You need to do more. And what brought me to Chateau was we actually, the department had hired, finally, it was my dream, right? I ended up, part of my story was walking away from my own program because I felt like I wasn't being, like it wasn't being bought into. And then I had at some point to take, to make a choice between myself or what I was trying to do. And I chose myself for the first time in my career and I had to step away from my own program and it blew up. And I knew I was going to kill my own program. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done other than coming to Chateau. So we had finally hired him a, a clinician and she and I became friends because I knew her from before because we were using her as part of the EAP, right? And she sat me down. She's like, hey, I've known you now for a year. Your baseline's not changing. I'm really concerned about, I know that you're coming up on retirement. There's this place. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I talked people into going to places like Chateau, but I was like, yeah, no, I don't need that. I'm good. You know, same old crap. I'm good. I can handle it. I'm on top of it. I absolutely was not. And she didn't even know the half of it. Like I knew I wasn't. So I brought it up with my therapist, knowing that he is very much not a proponent of in residential for law enforcement, but just because we're such control freaks that, that, you know, his experience was is that we don't do well in those settings. We're better to do outpatient like IOPs. And I said, you know, will you just talk to her about her perspective? I just, because I feel like I'm not making the best decisions for myself and I need you to chime in. Like, I need you guys to let me know for sure. Um, Cause I was terrified. I was like, I am not going to a residential. Like, no, I don't have a substance use issue. I'm fine. You know? So they talked and the next therapy session, I got floored by my therapist. It was almost like a mini betrayal. He's like, yeah, I think this is a good idea. And I was like, what are you talking about? And the next thing I know, you know, our clinician's like, yeah, I talked to him. Like, we can get you in tomorrow. And I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? And it, anyway, long story short, I was allowed to, I was encouraged to come up in Tour Chateau. That's when I got to meet Austin. And oddly enough, it's funny how God or the universe, however you view your spirituality, but I walked in and the, the receptionist, Hilda, any of you have been to 
to Chateau, no Hilda. I had known Hilda from another wellness program that I test drove for my own, my own wellness uh, program at the department. And I walk in and here's Hilda and she recognized me. And I was like, okay, all right. All right. I'm listening now. Yeah. Why would Hilda be here if this was not something I should be doing? So the second hardest thing I've ever done in my career was to drive myself to Chateau and take a step through that door. But I had already wrapped myself around after talking with my therapist, talking with the support system that I was now recognizing I actually had that I wasn't using and they were desperate to help me and they wanted to be there for me. I went into Chateau specifically to deal with one situation that was not the work related because we knew it was affecting our ability to manage my PTSD. And we hadn't been able to get to it in therapy because we were literally at that point just undoing my previous week. We were just undoing the exposures from the previous week. We could never do the deep work that we both knew I probably needed to do. Um, so that's why I ended up going to Chateau. And, and of course, the, the suicidal ideation, we just couldn't stop. We couldn't figure out what was going on. We just figured that was part of my PTSD now. Uh, but it was concerning because there was any given time. I, I think he probably still has that concern for me. Um, Cause any given time, it's just still there. Sally pops up once in a while, but it's not nearly as bad. So that's why I went to Chateau and um, it opened my eyes in a few things. Like I said, I felt like I had a pretty good resiliency and some coping skills, but I learned so much more there. Um, and what I loved about Chateau is that the program throws all these things at you to see what works for you. It allows you that control back to see what of these things work actually for you. And I found some things there that I still do that work really well. And I was able to access all the, the tools and the clinicians and, and really do some deep self work while I was there, the, the 30 some odd days or 28 days that I was there and the ideation stopped and it hasn't been a problem since. And so, and, and I also learned to get out of my cop self, which has been super helpful in retirement. Uh, for example, my roommate had just come from detox. She was not a first responder. And in fact, she, she was an addict and a convicted, you know, she'd done time. And so when that, when I, when she first got there, I just saw her as a human being and she was so sick. My heart went out to her. Like she was just sick. She slept and I was bringing her food and all this stuff. And then she woke up and told me her story. And I was like, wow, like who would have thought I'd end up a roommate with somebody that I've arrested in the past. And it, at first it was super scary. And then I got to know her and I got to know her story and found out that her story, like pay, mine pales in comparison to hers. And she's just a human being trying to, to get well like me. Right. And so, um, that was one good thing that I was exposed to at, at Chateau was just being able to recognize that I really am not alone. I'm certainly not alone as a law enforcement officer, even though I felt that way. And I think I knew it, but I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel uh, that I was anything but in this silo until I went to Chateau and then recognized that we're all having this same experience. And that's why it still astounds me that we have to have these conversations at the legislature. If, if they could come to Chateau for one day and see the breadth of it, maybe that would change that conversation. And I wish there was a better way to bring it forward. I wish it was, it, there was a way to bring that Chateau experience outward to chiefs, to legislatures, to leaders and departments, because I still think we're, we're just not getting it. It's, we are incredibly resilient, but at the same token, we are human beings. And, and the science says that the level of exposure we have is going to have an effect in some way, whether that's PTS or anything else. So we're just ignoring that fact still 
as a profession? Well, I think we're doing it right here. I think this is, I think yeah. this is a lot of, of uh, what you're talking about doing is, is just having uh, conversations like this on podcasts and, and advocating uh, not only for, you know, your own, your own health and wellness journey, but for those others out there that you can look at them and say, yeah, that was me. You, isn't it funny now you can actually look and see that look, you know, the look you had in the mirror. Now you can see on other people. And I think, I think this is, this is a great platform to do that. Uh, you know, and hopefully we get some listens on this. We know we're doing some cool things and we're getting a lot of people downloading this, but I think this is the conversation space for that to really be free, especially for officers that are out there doing and firefighters and first responders that are out there doing the work and, and hearing this message and saying, Hey, I'm not alone in this. Uh, you know, I, you bring back a memory of, I was three days in listening to a PD officer that was leaving. He started telling his story. I'm like, dude, that's me that you're telling my, you're telling my story. And I right. have yet to hear anybody around me prior to Chateau talk like you're talking. I just remember how deeply right. that resonated in my soul. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what I found at Chateau too. It's like, you know, here we think we're all special. And, and it's funny because it, at the same token, you, you learn not to compare experiences, right? But you do, because that's what cops do. That's what first responders do. We're constantly either one-upping or, I mean, we compare experiences, but when it comes right down to it, we are all experiencing the exact same level of traumatic exposure. And it's going, like I said, it's, it's going to affect people differently. I know one of the, uh, one of the things I saw over my career was, you know, guys would be great until they had families. And then that very first kid that cried like their kid or whatever. And I never had the privilege of, and, and you know, I didn't, I was never graced with children, but the children are what I remember the most, mostly because they're just the true innocence. Right. And I, I don't think, I don't know how anybody in the insurance field or anybody else can with a straight face say that seeing injured and dead children is not going to affect you. And it's, it's somehow tied to something in your childhood, right? No, it's tied to the fact that you're a human being and you're in this profession to help other human beings and you're watching what other human beings do to each other. And it's horrific. And we just need to accept that. It is horrific. And you can have a very productive career. I did. Yes, I suffered, but I managed through it. And now I've, I've gotten to a place because of, of programs like Chateau and, and the work that you do there and then continue to commit to myself after is, is I'm now working on acceptance and surrender before I would fight, you know, the fact that I had this thing and I resented it. I resented being on, on medication. I resented having, like, I resented my therapist saying, you need to go to this place. Right. But I can't, I can't deny my experience. I was a great law enforcement officer. I did give my community some really good things. And it's taken me a long time to be able to say that. I still, in some ways, some days, I feel like I wasted 30 years. I wasted 30 years and woe is me and here I am now. Well, the fact is I am here now, but I have much better ways of dealing with it. And I know that I'm not alone in my experience. And I have this wonderful group of lucky people, as we say, maybe a different term. <laughs> The LFC, right on. Lima Foxtrot Charlie. Those of you who have been to Chateau know what I'm talking about. Those of you that haven't been, you'd have to go to Chateau to learn that one. You know, though, least I think, I think there's, a, I think there's a valuable point to be made here, and not, not to, not to pass over it too quickly. Uh, you know, on behalf of of all the people out here in the world, 
thank you for your service for 30 years. It's really hard to actually say that about yourself. I know that I, from personal experience too. And I, it warms my heart to hear you say, I can say I gave 30 years of great service. It's, it's, and it's hard to say. Believe it or not, that's, that's only come in the last week that I've had to just go, you know what? I, if I didn't believe in that, why would I have stayed that long? Was I that dumb? No, I'm not a stupid person. I did it because I still, and I still, even in the end, I enjoyed the job, giving that service. I'm service oriented. Anybody who's in this profession, first responders, nurses, dispatchers, firefighters, paramedics, we're in it for the service. We're service oriented individuals. Well, let's so talk- now, you know, the challenge is, is figuring out how I want to be service, service oriented in retirement because that's who I am. Well, let's talk a little yeah. bit about that. Let's, let's talk okay. about the smile. Right. What, what drives you now? I mean, what you, you have come so far, what, uh, what do you, what do you do now and how do and how do you, how do you maintain? So, um, I'm still pretty, I, I've had to recognize, uh, coming out of Chateau that, that I, I need structure for my, my injury. I actually really do need structure. And if I don't use structure, um, then I tend to, to regress a little bit. So my goal coming out of Chateau was to learn how to just live again because I'd lost that, right? There was the job and there was going home and trying to sleep, which I wasn't doing. So it was mostly just the job and surviving the trauma. And I wasn't living. I'd, I'd stopped doing a lot of things that I enjoyed. I'd forgotten how to get enjoyment. Like I just couldn't feel joy because I was so locked into my head all the time. So now I have a totally different structure. You know, I get up and I chill. I don't get up and go, oh gosh, I gotta, I gotta check emails and do all this stuff. And so, but it's, it's funny because it's like baby. I've had to learn how to adult again, like just basic stuff. At some point you come out of, of the job and a few months down the road for me, I walked into my house one day and I went, how does one person do this to a house? Like, when did that start? And it was curious to me. I didn't, I couldn't answer it. Like, when did I stop making my bed? When did I stop doing the dishes? Like, I mean, I know I'm living alone. I don't have to press anybody, but my gosh, like, when did you stop just doing normal stuff? So um, that's been what I've been working on. And we had a, we had a concept that came up, that came out, resonated out of, out of therapy, which was taking back ground. And so I've been trying to identify those things that I used to do. And, and Gil Martin talks about this. Anybody who's had a a seminar from Gil Martin. He talks about going home and making a list of things that you used to do. And why don't you do those anymore? So I did. I made a list of things I used to do, used to enjoy. And I've been trying to check those off. And some of them have been a challenge just because of the nature of, of my injury. Um, you know, I still don't do well in crowded places. Like one of my goals for those of you out there might seem simple is to go to Costco on a Saturday. It terrifies me, believe it or not, because there's just too many people and it's overstimulating, blah, blah, blah. But we're slowly working that towards that. Too. Yeah. So um, I've reconnected with uh, my photography and the creativity there. Um, as Brad knows, I go on walkabouts. For me, I'm kind of an anomaly that way. Everybody says, you know, when you have PTSD, you shouldn't isolate. Well, I've I've done, I've largely managed my life solo. And so I still do that. Um, but now I can go down and instead of looking for places to kill myself, I'm engaging my creative side through photography, which is something I used to enjoy and now I enjoy it even more and it's engaging and and uh, I'm I'm seeing new places and challenging my boundaries with fear and anxiety in ways that I haven't been able to for years and it's been empowering to do that and so that's where the smile is now coming from because I 
those who have been through Chateau, you know that you're going to identify your one word. That's part of it here. Those of you who haven't been, you'll have to come to Chateau to learn that too. But your one word is something that that is your driver. And for me, it was passion. And that's what I realized I'd lost was a passion and zest for life and living. I'd forgotten how to live. And so, yeah, in the beginning, I wasn't really sure. Like you leave a career and you're really pretty lost for a while. Like, you know, you don't have to get up. It took me a month to stop looking for my second phone. I kept thinking I was losing a phone because I was so used to having two phones. Like I would panic and then realize, oh, you're dumb. You don't have that anymore. So it's those little things. And and now I can laugh at them because they really are. At first I was like, this is so stupid. Like, why are you, this is so stupid. Why are you happy about this? But now it's just, every time I have a little tick, like, you know, I got to watch the birds this morning and watch the sun come up. Wow, that was amazing. I can actually say that it felt amazing. It's been a several month process and it's going to still keep going. But now I'm, what gets me up is I'm in, I can make up my own day and decide what ground I want to take back. And then when I do it, it's like, yeah, okay, I can do this. This is life after law enforcement. Okay, it's going to be good. Like there's so much more I haven't been doing that I want to do. And now I have the freedom to do it. That's the beauty of retirement, right? So yeah, Brad's Brad's been able to watch me kind of go from angry, resentful to, yeah, if I want to sit in my jammies all day, I'm going to do it. And it's cool. And that's not me. That's self-care now. <laughs> Whereas before I'd be like, you are so lazy. Now it's like, I'm just going to sit in my jammies all day and sit my cocoa and watch the birds because I can and I like it. So. You know, the the pictures from the locations that you traverse through this new chapter in your life are absolutely stunning. They're absolutely stunning. You're obviously your photography um, passion and your photogenic eye uh, for the nature is just absolutely breathtaking at times. Thank you. It, it says more about you and where you're at and the enjoyment of the photograph than really the the scene itself to me, because you, you, you know, you just see it, you see a, through those, some of those photographs, you just really see this joy, uh, obviously your passion. Yeah. I can, I can see it now too. Whereas before, you know, I was just hiking in these crazy places to just go, yeah, nobody's going to find me here. If I did it here, nobody's going to find me. Like they're not, they, it's going to take them days. There's no way, you know, and now I can go, wow, look at that texture. That's really amazing. How, how does nature do that, you know, and I, I, I have that curiosity and then that wonder and that awe and that amazement. And it only comes in spurts. You know, sometimes I don't feel it. That's also the nature of, of a PTSI, right? It's not always going to be there, but now I've learned to kind of dumb it down. Like I don't have to have this mind blowing, amazing experience. Like I can have one day where I go, Oh, that's really cool. And it's like, Oh, wait, I felt something. That's cool. That's great. You know, we just took back some ground yeah. today celebrate that. I can celebrate those little things instead of beating myself up every day for, you know, not having this, everything's perfect all the time. Cause I mean, I'll be honest, I'm still going to have bad days. I still do have really bad days. My bad days suck. And sometimes I still have to reach out to my support group to get through them, but I, I now know that they're going to pass and I'm having less bad days and more of these little moments of, Ooh, ah, this is great. I'm living again. And you know, without having gone to Chateau and, and learning to give myself permission to put myself first, because we don't do that as first responders, we're taught not to, right? We put ourselves last. That's the nature of service. But now I know it's okay to put myself first. And that's what I need to do to manage my injury 
And if, if I want to enjoy life, it's my choice. Now I do have a choice in how I want to approach life. And I had to learn that by going to Chateau. And now I try to embrace that every day. And this is something that I think I want you to possibly impart on people if you can. It seems to me that you're under the mindset that this is a lifelong journey for you, right? And each day is an opportunity to to learn, to grow. I think that there's a, a something that happens to people just naturally when they go through like long-term therapy or something like Chateau where they go, as soon as I'm out, I'm done. Like I don't have to do anymore. I worked on myself so hard for X amount of days and I'm done and I'm good and life is just going to be amazing and I'm going to have no problems. It seems to me that a lot of your success has come from not having that thought process. Yeah, and I, I did have to learn that because you do feel, I mean, you go into a structured program and, you know, everything is done for you. You have a very regimented schedule. You know, you're doing this, you're doing all this deep self-work and then you come out. And I remember the first day, like, you know, I slept in my own bed and then I woke up and, and the worst part was, is I, I went home because I actually got, I managed to avoid COVID on the job for like two years. And then I go to Chateau and ended up with COVID Absolutely. in the end. And so I just thought, you know, if I'm going to be sick, I want to be sick in my own bed. So I, I was already sick anyway, but I woke up the next morning and I got up and I was like, yeah, I got to make my own breakfast again. Wow. Okay. We're going to start this right now. But yeah, I, in talking with others that have been through this experience and particularly those that, that struggle with the substance use issue, yeah, you, you have to expect that you're going to have a relapse or a regression. Um, it's the nature of, of having, in my case, PTSI. It's just the way it is. But learning that you can have the confidence to use the tools to do that is also part of that process. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, when I first came out, I, I have to admit I was somewhat judgmental and maybe a little arrogant with the fact that I miraculously did not develop a substance use issue. I mean, I look at it now, it's like, how did I not use that as a coping mechanism? I just didn't probably because I, you know, adult child of an alcoholic and I wasn't going to touch that because I saw what that did. But, you know, I'd hear people talk about recovery and I was like, yeah, I'm not really in recovery. I'm, you know, I had that mindset to some extent, like, oh, no, I'm good. Like the ideation's gone. I'm good, blah, blah, blah. And then it became pretty clear to me in hearing other people's stories that, yeah, no, this is a lifelong process. This is, I am undoing 30 years of not knowing how to manage an injury that I didn't ask for, I didn't go looking for, was not caused by any fault of my own. It was caused by my willingness to run forward into places that other people don't dare go. And do I have some resentment for that still? Yes, I do. Like, you know, look what 30 years got me. That often comes up with everybody's like, oh my, like what a waste. Look what 30 years got me. Look how I am now. Well, how I am now is a much more healthy, resilient, and I think even intentional. Like I now, because of my recovery, because I'm, I'm understanding that this is a lifelong process, I have to be more intentional about living. And in some ways, a majority of the population that don't experience this can't do that. And it's beautiful if you allow yourself to see it, you know, and I have to be intentional about my own self-love, which I think a majority of this world doesn't have. If we had more self-love, we wouldn't have the world we have. And God, someday we might not need law enforcement. You know what I mean? Wouldn't that be wonderful if we didn't have to have that? So yeah, I, it took me a bit to accept that, but I do now like this recovery is a lifelong process and it, it it's going to have its pitfalls, but you know what? I am aware of it now. 
I'm aware of them. I, I can recognize them. And now I know what to do about it. And it's going to be okay. And it's okay to feel that, which before I couldn't say it was not okay. Like I'm broken. I'm a broken toy. I'm a misfit. And now I've been thrown on the misfit island. Yeah, no, I'm not a misfit. I am your average law enforcement officer that did 30 years of service. And we need to start talking more about that. Not just within our own, like you said, not within just our own profession, but outside it. The sooner we accept that, the sooner we talk about it and and come up with real world ways to make those that are still in the profession feel more comfortable in getting to a point that I and others are, the better off the profession is going to be. You're going to be able to retain those people you really want in the profession, and they're going to come out happier and healthier. And don't we owe that to people that are willing to run in? We do as a community. And I can say that now because I am now the community. I'm no longer law enforcement officer. I'm now the community. And I feel that that's important to say. Lisa, I think this has been an amazing conversation. And I really think this is a, a probably a great place to, to kind of close this out. I cannot thank you enough for coming on and, and imparting some wisdom and your story and being uh, transparent enough that I, there's no doubt that this is going to be very impactful to the listeners out there. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. We want to give a special shout out to our sponsors of this episode, Chateau Recovery and First Responder Trauma Counselors. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues, it addresses the why. Each of their trauma-trained and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the county to treat responders and veterans, in fact it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour, all badges, all uniforms, all scrubs, educational experience helps you create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. FRTC's National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent licensed behavioral health clinicians, who teach from lived experience not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive, educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details go to their website 911overwatch.org or contact first responder trauma counselors at 970. 970- 222-4193, this could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.